It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a castle keep of classiness. It is classy because of you. But in a cacophonous world. By the way, do you know what cacophonous means? It means loud and strident noises. In other words, it's like the squeaking a racket, like a squeaking of, of my chair. <laughs> I need to get a little WD-40 on that. Love Absolutely. WD-40. Absolutely. Well, those are the production values you get from a homemade podcast <laughs> by two old folk. Oh, I'm by hearing, one old folk. I'm hearing the bird in the background. Oh, uh, well, you better shut the door so Chatty the bird, bird. It's okay. behaves itself. All right. Well, so if you don't mind listening to a little parrot noise in the background well we appreciate it i'm joe alton md that old dr bones the founder of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net where you'll find 1200 articles podcasts and videos on medical preparedness and i'm amy alton actually the co-founder of the same stuff (laughs) it's okay don't worry i love you i am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife so why do men always want to take all the credit? You, I don't know. Testosterone? Testosterone. <laughs> well, it's good it's to know. It's probably the answer for a lot of manly behaviors, well, which I don't mind a lot of them, actually. I'm glad I have a tiny bit of that left. Just a little, <laughs> little droplet of testosterone still left somewhere in my body. Well, I just want to say that you are not just a certified nurse midwife and advanced registered nurse practitioner. You are also the hostess with the Moses and the purveyor of some of the highest quality medical kits on the planet. That's right. And so wonderful, by the way, that she's like a warm caress wrapped in a kiss, wrapped in a litter of puppies, wrapped in a deep dish pepperoni pizza. Mm. <laughs> Which we can't Boy, eat. Yum, yum, yum. I'm talking about the pepperoni pizza, not the litter of puppies. I, however, am like a salamander wrapped in a seaweed sandwich wrapped in a box of frogs, I have to say. Oh, stop. <laughs> You're so silly. Yes. Where did the poet come out here today? Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> I'm just full of it today. Uh, I'm full of it every day, really. Yeah. Well, we have oh a lot God, to say. Oh, my God. Move on. You're killing me. <laughs> we have a lot to say, and it's some of it's conventional wisdom and some of it's very unconventional wisdom. But before we start, we got to tell you that... We'll go as far as we have to to make your family medically self-reliant in times of trouble. But before we start, you better listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but what about those natural disasters, those pandemics, all the curveballs that life may throw at you? There may come a time when you are the highest medical resource left to your family, and our job is to make you effective in that role. We want you to succeed when everything else fails. And since we're failing to 
I shut the door. Get rid of the bird's noise. Shut, we have shut, shut the door. Shut the door. We shut the door. So we don't the hear the birdie bird. That's right. Who's saying birdie bird. <laughs> <laughs> the bird sings bird, 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 bird. Birdie yes. bird, bird, bird. <laughs> yep. we should, I guess we shouldn't have named it bird. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just makes it clear who we're talking to. That's right. It's actually named TD bird when that stands for... That darn. That darn. Right. That's right. Keep it clean. PG-13, please. All right. Hey, you know, I don't know how much you guys know about this, but there are millions of tons of plastic refuse that have entered our oceans annually. I don't mean in the last few years. I mean since about the year 1950 when they started making plastics mm -hmm. in huge quantities. And they formed a Texas-sized dump known as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch, otherwise known as the GPGP. That I just made that up, the GPGP. You made that up? Yep, I sure did. So they don't actually call it that? Well, they might. It would make sense. GPGP? I don't know. We have too many acronyms. Well, huh. I don't think we have enough. <laughs> well, anyhow, it's one of the things that really frosts my cookies that this thing exists. But what is the GPGP really? People are often confused about what the garbage patch is. Well, it's not a landfill-like continent made of plastic that you can walk on or build your vacation home on. It certainly isn't that, but it is true that due to currents, there's a higher concentration of plastic there than any other parts of the ocean. There's the, this group here mm -hmm. in the Pacific, well, that seems to originate, well, from Asia, North America, and South America, but it's not the only garbage patch in the ocean. There are other collections of debris that exist in the South Pacific, the Indian Ocean, and the North and South Atlantic. Within the GPGP, several areas contain more visible plastic than others. Mm -hmm. There's an eastern patch, a western patch. And there's a convergence zone of plastic waste sort of in between, like an asteroid belt that, well, perhaps hasn't yet decided where it's going to end up. That's crazy. Wherever it goes, there's a negative effect on wildlife from, well, sea turtles to ocean-going birds, even to whales. You might be shocked to know that despite the millions of tons of debris floating in the water... There actually should be much more, given the amount that actually is sent there every year. Huge amounts of plastics wind up in the ocean, and where does it all go? And the answer is that all the visible trash isn't the only plastic in the ocean. Some may be on the seafloor, but it's the tiny bits of plastic smaller than 5 millimeters, known as microplastics, suspended in the water mm -hmm. that wind up being most hazardous to your health. Think of it as flecks of pepper floating in a bowl of soup. Yuck. That's so gross. Well, I mean, it makes me not even want to swim in the ocean ever. Makes me sort of want to have some soup, though. Oh, well, I do love soup. I love soup. I just don't want to get swim in it. that right. kind of <laughs> junk in your face. Because you know you always get water in your nose and your mouth and oh, in your boy. eyes yep. when you're in the ocean. Well, it seems that much of the missing plastic may be those kinds of particles. or even smaller ones called nanoplastics that are microscopic in size. And all these may have originated from larger floating plastics that have broken up over time. Mm -hmm. These things are exposed to UV sunlight. If they're exposed to UV sunlight long enough, plastic sort of becomes brittle. You may have noticed that. Right. And breaks into fragments. The resulting microplastic particles are dispersed at all depths. And the concern about these particles is they seem to end up in our seafood. There's a new study in collaboration with the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom and Australia's University of Queensland 
they analyzed seafood for the presence of plastics. And guess what? They found microplastics in every item of seafood that was sampled. The five types of plastics most commonly identified are polystyrene. Mm -hmm. Polystyrene is a versatile plastic that's used to make a wide variety of consumer products. It's hard and solid, used in products that require clarity, like food packaging and laboratory wear. When it's combined with various colorants, additives, or other plastics, polystyrene is used to make appliances, electronics, automobile parts, toys, gardening pots, all sorts of different things. It can also be made into a foam material. Is that styrofoam? I'm actually not sure. <laughs> and know. I'll tell you one thing. It also makes insulation. So insulation and cushioning properties, those are things that you'll wind up seeing. Foam polystyrene can be more than 95% air, and so you know that that stuff floats and winds up getting a lot of UV sunlight, and that breaks it down, and it gets even further. pretty crazy. So a lot of food service, food packaging, stuff like that winds up being made of polystyrene. And then there's polyethylene. Polyethylene is the most common plastic in use today. It's a man-made... Well, that's all man-made, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Primarily used for right. packaging, plastic bags, plastic films, membranes, co uh, containers, including bottles, water bottles and things like that. And as of 2017, over 100 million tons of polyethylene resins were being produced annually and accounting for about 34% of the entire plastics market. So lots of water bottles and all sorts of stuff made from made from that. Then there's polyvinyl chloride, and that is the third most widely produced synthetic plastic after uh, polyethylene and another one we'll talk about in a second. And there's about 40 million tons of PVC that are produced every year. And so it comes in two basic forms, rigid, sometimes known as RPVC, and flexible. And the rigid form is used for construction, or used for PVC pipes, things like that, and in profile applications like doors and windows. It can also be made into bottles, into non-food packaging, into food covering sheets, and it can be made into bank cards, membership cards, things right. like that. Right. And it can be made softer and more flexible if you add some other things. And in that form, it's used in plumbing and cable insulation, in imitation leather, flooring, signage, wow, all sorts of inflatable products, and a lot of applications where it basically is used in place of rubber. Mm -hmm. And if you put it in with cotton or linen, it's used in the production of canvas. Then you have polypropylene. Polypropylene is very resistant to fatigue. So this type of thing winds up being used for things that need to maximize strength. And so it's used in the manufacture of piping systems, um, and it's used for, since it's resistant to corrosion, it is used for just a lot of things like uh, things that can withstand heat in an autoclave, so some medical products. Uh, it also allows it to be used to manufacture things like kettles. I didn't know that. And food containers made from it will not melt in the dishwasher and do not melt during industrial hot filling processes. So we do have, don't we have some uh, food containers that don't melt in the dishwasher? Yes, we do. So that it probably are made of polypropylene. Yep. So how about that? Then there's polymethylene methacrylate. And 
This is something that they make eyeglass lenses out of, but not just eyeglass lenses. They also make the artificial lenses that are used to replace cataracts. Yeah, it's, it has a glass-like consistency, so it's used as an upgrade from glass and uh, can be used for constructing residential and commercial, uh, let's say, aquariums. It can be used for different kind of viewing ports for, uh, I don't know, submersibles, submarines, things like that. Like cruise ships, right? maybe? Bat right, yes. Or bathyscapes, like uh, the Trieste. Uh, the, these are things that go all the way down. You know, James Cameron takes these... Um, little vehicles all the way down, like thousands of feet underwater. Right, right. Well, that's what his glass windows are made of. It's also using the exterior lights of automobiles in their lenses. And if you've been to a hockey game, the spectator protection in ice hockey rinks is made from polymethyl and methacrylate. Okay. How about that? So anyhow. Probably highly resistant to scratching then. So it Think was about all the hockey pucks that hit that. Oh, glass. absolutely! And I keep saying glass. It's not glass. It's not glass. <laughs> we think I thought we thought it was glass. Uh, it's also an uh, important improvement in the design of aircraft windows, and so there are a lot of different things that uh, are used in aircrafts with regards to it. But way back uh, when the B seventeen Flying Fortress was used during during the war, mm -hmm. well, the Bombardier's transparent nose compartment was made of that. And so lots of interesting stuff. People, uh, police vehicles for riot control, they usually have their regular glass re replaced re with polymethyl methacrylate to oh, protect... Somebody's at the front door. ...protect the <laughs> occupants from thrown objects, things like that. So just lots of stuff. And other things that land plastics in the ocean include skincare products, like some of, some of the skin, uh, some of the beads that are in certain cosmetics. And all of this stuff lands in the ocean, floating on the seafloor, floating on the or laying on the ocean floor or even worse inside of living sea creatures the lead researcher of the microplastic study that i wanted to talk about today was published in the journal of environmental science and technology said that considering an average serving this a seafood eater can be exposed to approximately 0.7 milligrams of plastic when ingesting an average serving of oysters or squid and up to 30 milligrams of plastic when eating sardines. Wow, sardines, that's pretty crazy. So what they did is they washed each sample to remove any plastic that was just associated with packaging, but still they found in squid 0.4 milligrams of plastic per gram, in shrimp 0.07 milligrams per gram, 0.1 milligrams per gram in oysters, 0.3 in crabs, and 2.9 milligrams per gram in sardines. Now, every item contains some polyvinyl chloride. The highest amounts actually came from polyethylene, but each sample varied in the quantity and the type of plastic that was found. It appears that plastics generated by seafood progress to the edible parts of that seafood. Other ways that microplastics may end up in food could be airborne particles, machinery, and handling during the processing phase. And we take in about 17% of the protein in this world and consumed by humans, it consists of seafood. So the findings suggested those people who regularly eat seafood are also eating plastic. It's possible the humans may be consuming 39,000 to 52,000 microplastic particles every year. And it's not only in seafood. Micro and nanoplastics have been found in things like beer, honey, sea salt, even bottled water. 
Now, how bad is this for us? Well, it's, it's uncertain how toxic the ingestion of microplastics is, but it's very unlikely that there's any benefit, right? Since we can test for the presence of microplastics in food, we should consider making it a standard part of the labeling so the public knows just what it's consuming. The answer to the problem, though, well, that's preventing plastics from making it to the open ocean floor, our open ocean period, before they break down into those microplastics. And how do you think we can best decrease plastic pollution? If you've got the answer, send me an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. We always love hearing from you. Hey, I just want to tell you a little bit about something that I think is a little confusing and it's very important. It has to do with masks and social distancing. You know, medical experts have recommended that Americans wear masks in public, but are vague are what you should do if you're alone and unlikely to come in close contact with other people while outside. I see people as I drive by walking or riding a bicycle and they're alone. There's nobody within 500 feet of these mm-hmm. people. And, or, or more. Or, or more. <laughs> and they're wearing a mask. And it just seems to me that this is a little overkill. And, you know, there's a whole big atmosphere out there. And outdoors, it doesn't seem that there's any evidence that there's a huge concentration of COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2. No, it's absolutely ridiculous. And not only that, but the problem with our area is that we have nearly 100% humidity. And we all know what happens to a mask when it gets wet. You don't filter anything. You can't breathe. There's nothing that goes in nor out of a mask. So the more exertion you have from exercise or just being outside and having it exposed to this humidity, the bigger the reduction we have in actually exchanging any air through that mask whatsoever. And what happens and I've seen people do this, is they pull it out from the sides of their cheeks and they unfold the metal or plastic that's over their nose or and or under their chin and they basically make it appear as if they're wearing a mask, but everything they exhale and everything they breathe in is going in or out through the sides or the, the nose area and under the eyes. That's right. There's not actually any air exchanging through it at all. So we're all... Faking, not not us, because we always pinch our nose, because that's how we put a mask on from when we practiced. Right. Um, but people are just sort of artificially appearing to wear a mask. And my favorite is when they have the nose piece, the metal or the plastic, under the tip of their nose. Yeah. So it appears like it's on their nose, but it's just sitting right there. And, and you can almost see the top of their nostrils, because it's barely there. That's ridiculous. I think so. Just, why even bother at that point? And I have to tell you, though, I guess it's better than nothing. These cloth masks and even these surgical, regular surgical masks have lots of areas where air gets in and out that do not allow that protection, just like you said. Right. And so this is a reason why I always recommended having N95 masks. You know, we recommended it for many years. And I hope that if you in your list, storage, I hope you so listened. The whole, the whole point of what we were there. just saying is that by yourself, outdoors, really no one around you, it's just completely useless to wear a mask. And if your environment includes humidity, it, it's even worse because I know what everyone's going to do. Mm-hmm. They start having difficulty breathing, and they they 
puff it out around the cheeks. They puff it out around the nose. They puff it out around the mouth. They bring it down to, to it. So it appears as though it's covering their nose, but it's not really. It's just sitting there. I mean, this is what's happening. Don't even bother wearing it outside. I mean, frankly, and even this whole, oh, we had to shut the beaches down because we were going to transmit it. I would like to hear one case, one case of people outdoors, even in a crowd, because I know, oh, yes, you have to stay. If you're six feet away, you don't have to wear the mask. But even groups of people outside, I'd like to hear some transmission that happened. I really would, because I don't know of any. They keep saying, and you know, I don't know if it's theoretical or maybe they've made up some case, and they keep saying, oh, these these rallies, oh, people gather together, and, and whether you're including the riots or the peaceful protests or the Trump rallies or or the three people, never mind, um, you know, people close quarters outdoors, I have not heard of any official transmission. Have you? I've heard of people that say that the block party ended up in transmission. Yes, but did they go inside during that block party? Because block parties are not always just outside. People have to go to the bathroom. And also, they get tired of being outside and they want to change their atmosphere, so they go inside and hang out in the kitchen. Especially in the summer. Or hang out, right, in the air conditioning or hang out in the family room all over each other, you know, because they've got one couch and there's ten people who want to sit on the couch and they're on the floor, and now they're indoors so that the block parties are not actually always officially just outside. So if a block party, they get some transmission, we don't know that every single one of those people who got something were 100% outside. You know, so there was probably some indoor contact, even if it was just going into the bathroom and touching something and then touching their faces. So we don't know that 100%. I... Don't think that we need to wear them on beaches or at parks or walking or outside or exercising or anything we do outdoors. I mean, you'd have well, to be like in a, a sardine-packed situation for me to even slightly worry about transmission. Well, That's I have just to my say opinion. That, well, we, the CDC, despite all that, recommends that people wear masks in public settings, especially when... Other social distancing measures are yes, difficult to maintain. Yes, but what do they mean by that? Now, what, Public right. setting. Exactly. Does that, mean, does that mean when I step outside of my front door, I'm now, I mean, or, or off the sidewalk, I'm now in a public setting because I'm in the road? Well, the Cleveland Clinic, I is will say this. Is that the public setting? The Cleveland <laughs> Clinic is a little more reasonable. It says that if you're unlikely to be around anyone or will have the option of maintaining a safe distance from people you encounter, then a mask likely isn't necessary. But having one handy is a good idea, just in case. There's hedge, hedging their bets. I get a that. Bit. I get that. But they're not being specific. Right. Outdoor and fresh right. air, or or inside a building. But with it seems four that, walls and windows and a door. It seems that these two messages are not exactly the same message. I mean, the question a few people ask is, what qualifies as in public? As you have just asked. You know, you're out in public if you're walking in Times Square, but you're also out in public if you're hiking alone on the Appalachian Trail. There are a lot of times these days that even a walk around the block is unlikely to encounter a neighbor outside. Yes, but I'm saying that I don't care if you're in Times Square. You're out in the fresh air, and you shouldn't be getting COVID. I haven't heard of anyone who has officially been outside for a walk and with no other exposure to anyone saying they got COVID. The answer that we're all given is to practice safe six. 
Six. Six. Yep. Not safe sex, sex, which you should practice anyhow. But safe six. Six feet of distance from other people is thought to be the safe distance between yourself and another person. It's national policy, but our current thoughts on social distancing based on hard data. A cough or sneeze can project viral particles more than 20 feet in some circumstances. And I'm sure that you're talking about yeah, people that are... Yeah, you cover it. I think you're talking... <laughs> when you are saying the things you're saying, you're still talking about people that are asymptomatic. You're not talking about people coughing all over the place, you know, Well, those in people face. should be at home. Right. Well, in, that's true. In their bed is right. where those people right. should be. So you're be. talking about asymptomatic people, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so... A cough or sneeze, though, can project these viral particles, like I mentioned, more than 20 feet in some circumstances. Again, if you don't cover it. and <laughs> Right? Right. And a number of different activities, though, can provide the airflow that gets it moving. Coughing, sneezing, singing, shouting, even simple exhalation can extend to drop lit spread range. Mm-hmm. Now, a recent study published in the prestigious medical journal, a British medical journal, considers safe six and oversimplification of what the risks really are. Your risk of contagion depends on many factors. Are you indoors or outdoors? Are you in crowded spaces or alone? These considerations and others determine your real risk of contracting COVID-19. And I agree with that 100%. So in some high-risk settings, it seems reasonable that recommendation maybe even should be stricter and should provide more protection. But in low-risk settings, there should be more freedom and possibly allowing a return to a more normal life for a lot of people. How about how about in the garden center at Home Depot? How ridiculous is it that we have to wear a mask in the garden center in Home Depot? Because that's outside. Outside. I'm never in a crowd in the garden center. If, even on a Saturday afternoon... I've never found myself unable to be away from people At least in the feet. garden center in Home Depot. They make you wear a mask. In South Florida, it's 95 degrees and 100% humidity. And I have to put a mask on to go buy some organic soil. So, <laughs> Are you this, kidding me? It seems like you. there's no problem maintaining six feet. But how do we get to six feet? Distancing from sick individuals, for better or worse, is a very long history. In ancient times, people stayed away from leper colonies. Mm-hmm. By the way, leper, the word leper is not politically correct. Leprosy is now known as Hansen's disease. Uh, people would avoid visiting cities suffering an outbreak of the plague, mm-hmm. right? That would make sense. No one really knew, however, how much distance was actually required to be safe. An experiment performed in 1897 first suggested that one to two meters or three feet or six feet or so as the benchmark for infectivity due to droplet spread through the air. At the time, visible droplets from coughs and sneezes were collected and found to contain streptococcal bacteria in those distances. When these droplets landed in the mouths or noses of people nearby, they often got sick. Decades later, Advances in microscopy allowed better visualization. A 1948 study identified that 65% of subjects produced large droplets, but fewer than 10% traveled as far as five and a half feet. In those whose droplets traveled at least that far, however, pathogens were recovered nine to 10 feet away. Other studies reported that large droplets fall quickly, landing on surfaces rather than circulating around. That gave us the rationale the original rationale why it's important to disinfect work area surfaces. You know what else is important? 
for everyone to cover their dang mouths when they sneeze or cough. That's right. How about that? That how about makes a instead lot of, of sense. worrying how far away we are from each other, how about everyone just having some social responsibility and covering your your mouth and your nose when you sneeze or cough, and then using hand sanitizer afterwards, or even going into your elbow. Well, I guess if wearing I see, a mask would I'll, be what way. Well, I'll would tell do you that. what. I'll, if I'm outdoors and I see somebody not cover their mouth when they sneeze, I'm going to yell at that person. And, I, and I'm going to say, how dare you? And that would scare the and, hell out of and me. And I know they're going to look at me like I'm crazy, but I don't care. And they mm. may not even understand what I'm saying because I live in South Florida. But I'm still going to do it That's, because that is rude. <laughs> Everyone needs to be covering their mouths and their noses when they sneeze and when they cough. And if you don't, that's the person that needs to get yelled at. We're all having to wear masks because people don't cover their noses and mouths when they sneeze and cough. Those are the people who need to be shamed. So when you see someone who's sneezing or coughing without covering it, you need to shame them. Not the poor people who are wearing a mask who absolutely don't have COVID because we've all stayed in our houses and been careful. We're, we're suffering because of the people who don't cover their noses and mouths and the people who don't stay home when they could possibly be sick. All of us are suffering because of it. That's my little rant. And that is an excellent <laughs> rant. At present, I want to say that there is a United Kingdom advisory group that estimates that the risk of uh, SARS-CoV-2 transmission is about 2 to 10 times higher at 1 meter than it is at 2 meters. The World Health Organization suggests the risk of getting COVID-19 is about 12.8% at distances less than 3 feet and about 2.6% if it's greater than 3 feet. They seem to use 3 feet more often than 6 feet, uh, at least the World Health Organization does. Droplets, by the way, aren't all large. Studies find that they exist across an entire spectrum of sizes. Small droplets, also called aerosol droplets, mostly evaporate close to the exhaled source before they fall. Without airflow, they don't travel far. But if there is an air current, they can travel further than the large droplets. They weigh less. This is an ex especially an issue with indoor ventilation where the viral concentration is, harder, is higher. And Amy was talking about that. Now, a number of people vigorously exercising in an indoor gym, they exhale forcefully, increasing the risk of droplet spread. The same people have much less chance of passing virus on to others if those activities were held outside and they avoided groups. Now, a yet unpublished study suggests a risk of transmission about 19 times greater if these activities are conducted indoors rather than out. Therefore, being outside is generally considered safer than being inside. When taking a stroll or participating in other outdoor activities by yourself or with asymptomatic people you live with, a mask is probably not required. However, I think that when you find it difficult to maintain at least six feet of distance from people you don't live with, it's important to have your mask on. And the bottom line shows have your mask at hand when you leave your home. Physical distancing and masks are just part of a package. Hand and respiratory hygiene, disinfection, other measures must, must be included and I'm sure these strategies have saved some lives. In certain scenarios, however, some relaxation may be appropriate, as Amy says, and allow a return to maybe a kind of normality. It would be good for the economic and the psychological well-being of the nation, and may be a reasonable option for many people. The best idea is to allow greater freedom in low-occupancy outdoor settings while having masks available for use when needed. That's all the time we have for this week. We thank you for listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast with Joe and Amy Alton. Amy was quite 
animated today, and you will hear some pretty strong opinions from her from here on in, I think, with regards to this. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.